Hello, Eucharist Church and friends. Kevin Makins here with a couple of quick updates uh, before we get to the sermon. So first thing is that if you haven't gone back, please jump back and listen to the conversation Jill and I had, which was the last episode on this podcast feed, where we walked through a bit about the fall, what it might look like, and what uh, we're thinking about as we discuss what it might look like, because it's a complicated time. But in case you're not going to do it, which is totally fine, let me give you the highlights. In September, we're going to continue to meet online on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m., and we're going to be going through values of our community. These values uh, emerged organically over the first number of years of Eucharist, and we're going to be asking what do those values mean in 2021 when the world looks so different than it did when we first articulated these values. Second thing to note is that this coming Sunday, we're going to be having an all gather on September 19th at Gage Park in Hamilton, Ontario by the Rose Garden, if you know what the Rose Garden is. We're gonna be meeting at 11 a.m. and engaging in a short liturgy together as a whole congregation, and then we'll just be hanging out. So bring a lunch or a snack and some blankets and some something to throw around, whatever you got, and we'll be hanging out there. Also to let you know that on that Sunday and all the following Sundays in September, at least, if not longer than that, the sanctuary is also going to be open from two o'clock till six o'clock as a prayer room. And it's been an amazing space. So go check that out if you haven't seen it yet. Then in October, we're looking at having two different services in person, one of which we will be uh, putting online. And so we'll get all the details out soon. We'll put it in this space on the podcast, as well as at eucharistchurch.ca. Finally, if you are interested in more theological, spiritual reflection, I have wrapped up season one of a side project that I got to work on called The Question Box, where people would send in questions and uh, I would try to respond to the best of my ability to the questions that came in. We had questions about uh, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Should we have kids with a world that's on fire? Is Jesus really coming back on the clouds or otherwise? eight episodes that I think dig in a bit deeper than often what we can talk about in a Sunday context when we're going to be gathered as a community. If that sounds interesting to you, then feel free to search for The Question Box with Kevin Makins on YouTube or your podcast app. But with all that said, let's jump into the sermon podcast. Grace and peace, everybody. Hope to see you soon. Hi, everybody. Great to see you all. Happy fall. We made it. We did it. Summers are winding up. Some of you maybe sent kids off to school today. Some of you might have started new programs, went back to work, ended vacations. And for some of you, it's the same old, same old, but there's still that feeling in the air that something has changed. And so however you come into this gathering tonight, I pray that it uh, is a space for God to give you what you need, that the Creator knows you need. We are talking for the next five weeks as we kind of transition into October, and in October we'll be aiming to regather in person, but we thought we'd wait until then just to let this September rush calm a bit. Uh, so for the next five weeks, we are going to be looking over and revisiting the values that we discerned over a number of years that God was giving us. And those values, <laughs> you're supposed to like when you start organizations or start churches have like these things called mission statements which is like, we are a group of passionate, devoted disciples of Jesus making an impact. There's like nothing wrong with it at all, but I'm way too cynical for that stuff. So like when we started, I was just like, ah, mission statements, I don't know about that. And value statements, I don't know about that, but got pushed uh, relatively early and in a pretty, pretty neat way to consider that naming what a community values is actually a pretty important thing. 
because most of us don't spend a lot of time in communities. We're used to functioning as individual persons and occasionally popping into classes that we like or things we find interesting. But journeying with a community for months or years, for some of you, uh, more than a decade, requires communication, like any relationship that runs for the long haul, and expectation setting and constantly revisiting those uh, expectations or those values that you have. And so as a church, it can be helpful to make those more explicit. And of all the values that we discerned, and if you're ever interested in knowing how we discerned those, I'd love to share. It was a cool process. Uh, The top value that kind of came front of mind whenever anyone was asked to name what they saw God doing within our community was the word table. The idea that at the center of this thing was a table with bread and wine and open seats for anyone who needed a place to sit and a place to feast or a place to be fed or a place to receive conversation and hospitality. And so that metaphor really did drive us. Like for a number of years early on when we had ambition, we would throw these things called love feasts, which was where we'd get like over a hundred people together and the church would make the food for everyone and then we'd all serve it. And like one time uh, a couple in our church got married during one of these love feasts and it was a surprise wedding and there was like over 200 people and the bride and groom were serving people and they were eating and everybody was dancing. It was just one of those moments like the kingdom of God, you know, heaven kissing earth. It was perfect. But then we got tired, and so we didn't do that anymore. But we did potluck and eat meals. And of all the things I miss about the life of the church, I miss uh, being, someone said, got tired, had kids. For some of us, that was also the case. Got tired, got jobs. It was all sorts of reasons why uh, that wasn't sustainable forever. But potlucks and children crawling under the pews and laughing and eating and people making little competitive, uh, people would like write what their food was. Somebody once wrote, I think it was meatballs. And then next to it, there was even better meatballs. You know, just all these little community jokes and prods and times that we got to feast together. But the idea of the table obviously is a lot trickier now. What does that look like today? And not just because of this pandemic, but even the idea of the table as we had articulated it Back in the day, it didn't feel very controversial. God's bringing together everyone, whatever your political opinion, whatever you think about contentious issues, whatever space you come from, whatever your background or beliefs, there's room for you at the table. A decade ago, that sounded beautiful. And today, that sounds beautiful, but also a little concerning. The world has changed over the last decade. And on top of that, we haven't had many dinner parties in the last year and a half. We haven't had many potlucks. We haven't had many spaces where you're going to end up eating with somebody that you didn't know would be there, which is part of the way that Christ seems to set his table. And so maybe it's a good time to revisit what is the table at a time when we don't get to sit together at tables. You know, you've probably ordered Uber Eats or skipped the dishes in the last year. Was that the table? You know, maybe like me, you've, you know, eaten a shawarma while you watch YouTube videos. Is that the table? (laughs) If you go to a fancy restaurant and drop a lot of money on a dish with people that you love, but also who, you know, look like you and are people that you enjoy the company of, is that the table? And I'm not even saying that any of these things are or are not, just it's probably a good question to ask. What is the table? What makes a table beyond the physical form? of a table and some food. So I'm going to read from a 
kind of interesting example of the table from the letter 1 Corinthians. This was a letter written to the early church. And the early church had picked up that the table was going to be core to this mission of Christ. And you've got to like think about it from their point of view. They didn't even have the Bible yet. They just knew things about Jesus's life. Certain stories, certain teachings about the way had gotten to these communities. But they only had the Old Testament scriptures and the traditions they had received. And from there, they had to work it out. And the early church was made up of people who were a part of this story of God in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, Jewish people. But increasingly, they have Gentile people, non-Jewish people joining God's community, Greeks and Romans and people from all across the world. And they have servants and slaves that are at the table along with enslavers and masters and men and women who in no other place would have engaged at this level of conversation are now eating together, the rich and the poor are eating together. And uh, if you've ever had an idealized vision of the early church, I'm excited I get to now smash that because the early church had every single kind of issue that we could have today. Uh, They just had it in a different form. So this is a letter from one of the early uh, teachers of the way who writes to a community in Corinth that he was a part of and helped start. But now he's heard that when people get together to eat there, the rich are showing up for this meal. The, 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 the early church would have had very regular meals called love feasts, where they kind of incarnated, acted out this teaching of Jesus about the table. And Paul is writing them to say that he has heard that when they gather, those who are wealthy, who paid for more of the food and paid for more of the wine and are hosting the meals, Paul has heard that those who are wealthy are showing up early to make sure that they get their fill because they've paid the bills and to make sure they get the good wine because they paid for the wine. And then a couple hours, maybe after the wealthy have shown up and had their fill, the poor disciples show up. Those who are maybe uh, on the underside of power in the society, they show up for a meal and get only scraps. And this early church was saying, we celebrate communion. We celebrate the Lord's supper. We celebrate the love feast, Christ's table, just like he told us. And yet the way that they are practicing the table, the spirituality that they are bringing to that physical object, that is revealing that this is not the same table that Christ set, no matter what they call it. So we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you want to follow along, I'll be in verse 20. And I'm reading from a, a quite wooden translation. So I'll try to read slow in case you want to follow along, either in your own version or just uh, with your ears. Paul writes, when you convene in the same place, therefore, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each proceeds with his own supper. One person goes hungry while another is drunk. For do you not, in fact, have households for eating and drinking in? Or you, do you despise God's assembly and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I tell you? Should I praise you? In this matter, I offer no praise. For from the Lord, I received what I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is being broken for your sake. Do this for my remembrance. And likewise, after supper, the cup also, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink for my remembrance. For as often as you eat the loaf and you drink the cup, you announce the Lord's death until he come. Thus, whoever eats the loaf or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, unworthily, will be answerable for the Lord's body and blood. But let a person prove themselves, and so eat of the loaf and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Just to pause for a moment there. When he says, the one who eats and drinks without discerning the body, it's hard to know. Does he mean the body as in the, the bread that's Jesus? Or does he mean the body as in the full community of followers of the way, rich and poor, privileged and unprivileged, those with power and those without power? If you don't recognize, discern, notice the fullness of the body, both in the presence of Christ who's calling us there, but especially in those you can see coming to the table, then you're actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself because you think that you're practicing the Lord's Supper when you're not. So I just wanted to pause there for a moment to kind of explain uh, a little bit of context around that, because then it leads into this in verse 30. Now this, this heavy statement, thus among you, many are weak and ill and a considerable number have fallen asleep. But if we examined ourselves, we should not be judged for in being judged by the Lord, we are corrected by the Lord so that we might not have a verdict passed upon us along with the cosmos. So then, siblings, when convening to eat, wait for one another. Should anyone be hungry, let them eat at home so that you do not convene for judgment. It's definitely one of the harsher statements in the scriptures. And yet, you know, which of you, if you were friends with a group who were treating one another with this kind of contempt and classism and knocking down those who don't have anything, who wouldn't write something this strong. And for Paul, this isn't just a statement about how to be polite or how to be a good neighbor, or how to be loving. It's a statement about what this table is meant to be. The bread that we gather for isn't actually physical bread. When we eat at a potluck, it's actually not about the food. The food's delicious, but it's not actually about the food. It's about the Spiritual bread, the bread of the conversation that we have, the bread of worlds coming together, the bread of the mountains being brought down and the valleys being lifted up, the bread of justice, the bread of mercy, that's the bread that we eat. And by practicing communion, calling it communion without actually recognizing it for what it was, it's like the early church was falling into this rut of practicing a hollow table, a facade of the table without the power of the table. And so perhaps this is a good time for all of us who have been absent from most tables to consider that powerful, spiritual, soulful core of what the table was always meant to be. Because I don't know about any of you, but I have gotten to eat with a few people this summer. And I mean, just give me a, a smile. You don't need to put your hands up. But if you've gotten to eat like a meal with a person and you look at them and they look at you and they've got a face, like a real one with flesh and it's in multiple dimensions, it's incredible. And you, you smell the wine and you taste 
the food and all your senses are engaged, but it's not just your physical senses that are engaged. You also feel the presence of that other person in a way that you just can't in any other setting. They open up to you and you open up to them and you find that in that space over a good long meal, things naturally emerge that no one is controlling. No one is making the meal go in that direction. But when you hold that sort of loving space for one another, something beautiful just emerges. If we have a little attention to notice what is happening at the table. And so I've actually been trying to practice this summer. And maybe I'll just, if you have a meal with anyone in the next month, I hand this over to you. I try to practice attention, to really notice the face of the one I'm eating with, to pay attention to what they're saying, to not just think about myself. You know, I think back on potlucks that we had at church and how I would just run around because I just love people. I'm like a busy bee and I'm just like, hi everybody, how are you guys doing? Oh, that's so great. Oh, here's the kids. Hi everybody, how you doing? And now looking back, I think, man, I wish I hadn't been so busy trying to make something happen so I could just notice what was already happening without me needing to do a thing, what was already growing automatically. And I notice in those meals that I've been able to have with some people at the table, how unique people are, how complex people are. How nuanced and thoughtful and beautiful and mysterious people are. And here's the truth. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I've gone crazy. But I actually think that in person at a table, people are more interesting than they are online. It's the weirdest thing. I just think, you know, and when they share their opinions, I feel like there's just more there. And I find myself being transformed and they find themselves being transformed. And it's as if something happens differently around the table than can happen in any other space. If the church was called to be one new family, as the solution to all the trouble in the world, all the violence in the world, all the hostility, all the unforgiveness, all the power and privilege, and all the institutions around them, and the Roman Empire with the boot on their neck, if they were called to the table for fellowship, then how can we not be called to the table for fellowship? If you've never actually imagined it, just take a second to imagine what that table must have been like. Of all the dynamics in the early church, men and women and slaves and masters and Jews and Gentiles, these were not amicable relationships. Think about if you were a Jewish person sitting at a table with a Roman centurion. And this Roman centurion has come to know the way of Christ and is now trying to figure out how does the way of Christ impact my life as a servant of the state as one who is in line with the powers that executed the Lord. But now imagine also that you're a Jewish person sitting there across the table from this Roman centurion, and you know people who have been beaten and disappeared by the Roman military power. Imagine that you're sitting there looking at the face of someone who represents all the oppression and all the violence that your people have had heaped upon them. And now you're supposed to see this person as God sees them. You're supposed to look for Christ in that armor. The table has teeth. There's nothing soft about this. There's nothing easy about the table. There's nothing simple. Well, actually, it's quite simple. It's remarkably simple. And it's almost too simple to seem possible. How can a centurion and a Jewish peasant look at one another and look for Christ? But this is what we've received. 
We've received the good news that this works, that this is the way we untangle the hostilities. This is the way we reconcile all things. Not just with strategies and plans, not just with action and politics, all of which has its place, but for the follower of the way, the reconciliation of all things seems to fundamentally happen at the table. It's a funny thing. In the first couple of years of Eucharist, we would talk about the table, and at the end, we'd kind of break the bread, and it was all dramatic and fun, and people would come up, and we'd say, come to the table, come to the table. And then at some point, and I don't remember when, but at some point, we all just started referring to it not as the table or our table or Eucharist table or communion, but as Christ's table. And I feel like that just changed the image for me. That this table doesn't belong to me. This table doesn't belong to you. This table doesn't belong to us. It is Christ's table. And the good news is that Christ wants you there if you want to come. That's the good news. The good news is that Christ accepts you with all your baggage, all your issues, all your doubts, all your insecurities. You are welcome. There is a place for you. There is a seat for you. You are the beloved at this table. Yes, mercy. And the bad news, that you don't control the guest list. <laughs> right? Because if I give you a second, you could probably all think of exactly who you would not want to invite to Christ's table, and you certainly wouldn't want to be seated across from them. But that's the scandal of this simple table. We don't control the guest list. Because as much as we all have people we think of that we wouldn't want at the table, the shocking news is there are other people who wouldn't want you at the table, who wouldn't want people like you at the table. And that's why the table is a scandal. And we don't control the manners of this table. This table where everyone shares with a common cup and common bread, where feet are washed and thanks is given. This is Christ's table, his body and his blood, given to us so that we become what we eat. Amen. We'll leave a minute or so of silence, and I just invite you to ask the Spirit if you want to receive a gift tonight, to ask God, to ask the Spirit which is present with you. What does the table look like for me in this next season? I'll give you a minute to meditate on that before Jill leads us in a time of prayer. 